Hello, welcome to Candy Jail. I'm Marcus Puskar. As I've teased out a bit on the first two episodes, what really stirred my interest in this topic and motivated me to share my experiences was my exposure to the hidden world of systemic food waste and overproduction. And today, that's what we'll be digging into. Helping transport the excess of our food system has been a transformative educational experience for me. Rescuing food is an exercise in tactile learning. Feeling the weight of what you're picking up and moving, box after box of food, of produce, of meat, of snacks, of milk, of eggs, knowing that everything contained in those boxes is perfectly edible, coming from a store that is willingly parting with its product. It raises questions, especially once the food that you're moving becomes the energy that puts you through life. To become someone who lives on so-called waste is a strange place to find yourself in, particularly when you're eating better than you ever have doing so. So why shop at all? How is it possible for me to subsist like this? How can these supposedly highly rational companies allow so much to fall through the cracks? Do they mean for this to happen? As we touched on last week with Walmart's commitment to efficiency, the supermarkets and producers that fill them are, above all, money makers. Which means, if we need to understand why supermarkets are willing to waste on such a massive scale, we need to follow the money. These firms work to generate revenue, whatever form it may take. What we'll be investigating today is how that profit generation is accelerated by the willful overproduction of food. We will discuss how that overproduced food is quite deliberately kept from us. But first, let's quickly recap some of what we've already learned and place those ideas into the context of how they shape a massively wasteful system. In episode one, we discussed the origins of the supermarket. When Clarence Saunders invented the supermarket, he inadvertently created marketed foods. Recall that products had to now compete against one another on shelves, which means they needed packaging and shelf stability. In 2023, that means preservatives and plastic. So now, we have all these products sitting on shelves that don't go bad at nearly the rate that fresh food does. Remember, from episode 2 that the most predictable foods are best for logistical regimes like Walmart. Those easy-to-control foods, like corn and all its byproducts, are now produced in abundance. So it's easier to produce and distribute the predictable foods. To introduce us to the systemized waste of our current day, Josh Lonez will be our sense maker. Josh received his doctorate from West Virginia University in Geography, where he now serves as a director at their Center for Resilient Communities. He also serves as a research assistant professor in the Department of Geology and Geography at West Virginia, advancing questions related to agri-food systems governance with an emphasis on the political economy of nutrition assistance programs. His dissertation is called The Food Bank Fix, and I'll let him explain what that means. You know, the food bank fix as a concept is is pulled from a broader theory about um, fixes to capitalism and crises of capitalism. And so capitalism is largely, you know, a crisis-born economic system that continually faces the limits of, of its own expansion, right? So in the 19, late 1970s, we had one of those crises, the, the oil crisis, you know, which resulted in a massive economic depression and um, ultimately the election of Ronald Reagan, who kind of blamed a lot of the problems on people taking advantage of government assistance and got elected really on this narrative of uh, the black welfare queen that was just 
sitting around with her kids, you know, sucking at the government teat and not contributing to society, which is, you know, a very problematic narrative for many, many reasons, but uh, got into the White House and, you know, fulfilled those promises of slashing welfare. Well, when you cut housing assistance, you cut food assistance, you cut access to um, medical subsidies, you know, people are going to struggle economically. It's not overnight that you're going to be able to all of a sudden have enough income to um, meet basic needs. So what we saw in the 1980s was all of a sudden an explosion of people asking for food aid at these churches that had previously distributed that ad hoc, you know, was all of a sudden becoming uh, this national crisis born out of specific policy decisions. And rather than reverse those policies, um, what the Reagan administration decided to do with uh, some political pressure from people that had found out that the federal government was also buying all of this excess food and storing it in, in warehouses all across the country. There was this movement that said, you know, release the government cheese. We have hungry people and we have all of this excess. Um, why don't we just reconcile those? And really, that is the first fix, the first moment when food banks begin to institutionalize and come into being. We see, you know, in the years ahead, not only the release of food commodities, but the beginnings of uh, government investments into food banking infrastructures. And then those infrastructures end up being leveraged progressively over time by the private food sector. And the private food sector kind of builds off of these investments to also resolve its food waste problem. So that's why I call it um, a fix, because it's a fix to this broader, unsustainable capitalist food system that we're a part of that produces more than enough food to feed everyone, but also um, encloses that food behind a paywall, right? So rather than, you know, the actually most simple way to resolve the, you know, food waste crisis at retailers would be to say, come and get the food here. Instead, we have this whole infrastructure where the food goes from Walmart to a food bank, again, redistributes to a food charity, and we're creating all of these systems to fix the, the profit driven food system. I mean, the waste is a is a vehicle to supposedly solve the hunger crisis. And what the food banking economy has done is shifted the broader moral gaze of society upon hunger and created this explosion of discourse around hunger. Right. I mean, you see now going down the freeway, um, right off 68 where i live there's this big billboard like one in six children in america are hungry why feeding america you know and it just keeps producing this hunger 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 which is a much kind of easier discourse to have 
in a society that has a whole bunch of food, then poverty, 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 right? So we end up focusing on hunger as a society, trying to solve for hunger rather than actually shifting our discourse, right? Our like conversations around addressing poverty because hunger is ultimately a result of the production of poverty in society, the unequal distribution of wealth in society. And what is really egregious is that, you know, many of these food businesses that are donating food or, you know, the, the farmers that are overproducing and, and selling food into uh, commodity markets, it's on the backs of exploited labor that's keeping people in poverty. So across our food chain, you see um, workers that are paid you know, a pittance and have to use food banks uh, just in order to get by. So. so this becomes a bit of industry patting themselves on the back and turning it into PR. Keep people poor, capitalize on the defunding of any social welfare programs by handing out excess food, and then congratulate yourself for solving hunger after you've previously restricted people from getting the food. That's the playbook. Here's an ad that I think captures what Josh is describing that Feeding America, and by extension, all the companies that contribute to it, almost want there to be hunger, so that they can then play the hero by solving it. I am what hunger looks like in America. I am an eight-year-old girl who's not excited for the last day of school. Because this may be the last time I'll have lunch. Till September. I am a single father of two who works three part-time jobs, and that's still not enough to put food on the table. I am a 16-year-old boy who just got my first job to help feed my little sisters. I was created by artificial intelligence from faces of the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew they were hungry. Feeding America, 200 food banks strong. There isn't an incentive for Walmart, Kroger, Kellogg's to be talking about poverty, right? Because they don't necessarily want to solve for that. They don't want to uh, increase health benefits for their employees. They don't want to increase wages for their employees. They don't want to, um, you know, create the conditions for people to have secure access to housing and health care. But we can create the conditions for them to fill their bellies because we have all of this excess food to give away. And by the way, why don't we just take a tax break along the way and maintain um, this unequal incomes uh, in society in the process. So I think what, what Janet Poppendick was talking about with the moral safety valve is really this idea of like, we like talking about hunger and trying to solve for hunger because it's expedient it's easy. It's something that we feel like we can tangibly do. But as soon as you start talking about poverty, income inequality, wealth gaps, ooh, that becomes a little, little more, more sticky, right, for um, people engaged to volunteer at a food bank with their church, right? So as Josh just explained, 
there's more than enough food being produced. This is a system that all the food producers benefit from, where a symbiotic relationship forms with the supermarkets that carry the products. The sense of supply and demand becomes muddled. The suppliers are fulfilling orders to the distributors in excess of the real demand for their food. The result is that there's way more food than is actually needed passing through supermarkets. But where does this abundance manifest? If there's enough food to go around, how does it circumvent us? To explain, let's first illustrate a couple of peculiarities about the way that food is presented to us. The first peculiarity is that the FDA does not require expiration dates, except for on baby formula. Okay, weird, right? So if it's not the FDA stamping on those dates, or requiring them to be stamped on, who is? And for what purpose are they doing it? Well, it's the producers ensuring that they have a consistent, timely stream of product to distribute. If they know that products have to move off the shelf, they have more to distribute. They have more products to sell. They don't have to rely on customers to create demand. It's planned obsolescence, hidden in plain sight. Imagine, you're walking down a massive supermarket aisle, and all around you, simple carbs are screaming for your attention in their bright packaging. The very fact that you're surrounded, nearly suffocated by them, is, in and of itself, a marketing tactic. This is the second peculiarity about how food is presented to us. Abundance makes us feel like we should be purchasing more. So now there is a need to fill these shelves. To fill them to such an extent that all the products on them might not ever sell. Enter expiration dates. Expiration dates allow the producers to ensure that they have an eternal wellspring of ordering. Because the moment that an expiration date is approaching, the food in question can be relegated to its new life as a waste product even though the producer knows that the commodity in question probably isn't actually bad. It's a brilliant mass deception, because it's now manifested in us in such a way that we distrust our own senses. We've placed so much authority in expiration dates that it even allows products to move through our shelves at home in the way that it might in a store. Rather than relying on hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to avoid foods that have gone bad by using our senses, we take these claims at face value and discard food based just on the date that the food producer provides us with, which of course brings us back into the store to get more of whatever it is that we decided to chuck at a moment's notice. So it is a twin effect of creating the feeling of abundance and the circulation of products due to expiration dates that allow stores to be filled to the brim without selling all the products that they display. Before the food hits its date, in order to keep product churning through, the still good food is sometimes given to food banks. Of course, it also often ends up in locked dumpsters or doused with bleach before finding its way to a landfill. Once again, this calls into question the prevailing logic of our time, that of supply and demand. To illustrate, consider a well-meaning vegetarian or vegan, willingly foregoing meat to boycott the cruelties or environmental damage caused by factory farming. In this system, where supply and demand is suggested to us as a way to create change, the boycotters are assuming that their rejection of meat products is being weighed by a rational system that carefully considers its production rate in order to avoid any excesses. It assumes that these businesses don't factor in massive amounts of their products being discarded. Often, the products end up in landfill, adding moral confusion and calling into question whether a principled boycott is even possible within this irrational system. Anyways, after serving its function as a marketing display for the supermarket, Overproduced food sometimes is lucky enough to make its way to a food bank, where critically, it is turned into a donation, and therefore, it reincarnates as a revenue stream in the form of a tax break. This form of tax incentive plays a large role in justifying the overordering by supermarkets, and it takes place on a systemic level. 
Here's a quote from Josh's dissertation explaining the many benefits that this has for all the actors involved. Quote, Reprocessing unsaleable food creates opportunities to further legitimize the capitalist food regime by caring for the poor and increase capital accumulation by large agro-food actors through reduced tax burdens, artificial price points, waste disposal costs, and positive brand impact. End quote. I can't really get into artificial price points because of time, but this is often called artificial scarcity. If you hide products by discarding all those that you don't sell, you create the illusion that it is more valuable. But this is all to say that this is a structured, organized response by producers and distributors, and it takes its shape in the form of an organization called Feeding America. Feeding America is now the largest nonprofit in the U.S. and oversees the distribution of all the excess food of America's major supermarkets. Um, I can try to explain it, but it's like a very large um, organization that continues to morph, right? It's not a fixed entity. I want to make that clear. And for example, they recently hired somebody that was doing a lot of activism around social justice issues and building this network called Closing the Hunger Gap. I think that Feeding America recognizes that there are structural issues to hunger in the country. However, within that organization, the forces that be around how Feeding America is acquiring food and redistributing that food, they are in bed with some of the most powerful corporations in the world. So, you know, if you look at the list of partners that Feeding America partners with, you have Walmart, Kellogg's, Cargill, Kroger, these are, you know, the largest food corporations that are dictating not just how the poor eat, but how most of us all across the country eat. They enter into exclusionary contracts with those corporations to access food. So if I, as an independent food charity, want to set up something in in a park and distribute food to my neighbors. And I go to Kroger and I say, could I get your food waste? Kroger will say, no, 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 you, you know, we are giving our food waste to a Feeding America affiliated organization because Feeding America has the contract with that corporation to acquire their food. So the way that that translates over space is that they have about 200 regional food bank affiliates. So Feeding America is kind of a shell organization that has real tangible food banks all across the country. They also enter into contract with Feeding America saying, I will operate this way. I will do this and this and this and that. Um, And then they get monitored by Feeding America to, in a sense, protect the Feeding America brand. That when you donate to this organization, you're donating to a legitimate, well-organized nonprofit. So Feeding America, in a sense, has, has captured the corporate food waste stream and locked it into a supply chain that guarantees that the food will be used in specific ways that don't disrupt profitability on primary markets. 
because you can imagine if all of the sudden you know the the waste generated by our food system was fully exposed and available you know i wouldn't necessarily go to kroger anymore to shop i would just go pick up my free food so there's this dynamic of like needing to hide the free food in somewhat shameful hidden like space that is for poor people to access instead of having a conversation about how our entire price points are kind of disrupted right if this costs me six dollars when i buy it at a grocery store and it's free if i go down the street to the baptist church um so Feeding America is a large, you know, the largest now nonprofit in the country that regulates food waste flows to make sure that those are governed in particular ways that don't disrupt profitability on primary markets. Feeding America is also a clearinghouse um, because it, it would be very, very complex for Walmart to process tax deductions for its thousands of stores with thousands of different smaller nonprofits, right? Like it would cost Walmart too much and they would feel like it's not worth it for me to get hundreds of thousands of tax receipts every time that I donate food. So what Feeding America has set up is a streamlined uh, tax write-off process that um, every time a food bank goes to a Walmart they report the amount of poundage that they picked up. You know, if it's a local agency picking up uh, with an agency-enabled pickup model, they report that back to their food bank. The food bank then is required to report that back to Feeding America. That's part of the terms in their contract. And then Feeding America consolidates all of the tax receipts, right? Every month or every quarter, for that particular corporation. So they can then write a tax receipt for all the Kroger donations across the country, for all the Walmart donations across the country, for all the Kellogg's donations. Um, and so they are a tax deduction clearinghouse for the corporate food sector. And as a quick aside, Feeding America provides its supermarkets with vital access to PR. I challenge you to seek out Feeding America ads now that they've been called to your attention. They surround us. And so, you know, how, how much marketing is a big, and social marketing and these kinds of things also drive consumption. So these partners and partner corporations can also put the Feeding America brand on their packaging and say, like, you know, when you're buying this, you are also contributing to hunger relief. Which makes absolutely no sense. You're not contributing to reducing poverty so that people can afford their basic necessities. You are contributing to uh, a food waste cartel that um, you know maintains the current power structures in the food system.
Yeah, I think it's important to say that like this model that's been experimented with in the U.S. for the past 40 years now, and hunger has not been solved, even though the food bank is continually claiming that it's working toward that goal, is now being exported across the world, right? So Feeding America um, now has this sister organization which isn't affiliated with Feeding America per se, but definitely grew out of it, called the Global Food Banking Network. And they're really supporting the emergence of food banks all across the world. Um, and I recently came from their uh, conference in Mexico City. There were food banks from, I think, over 70 countries there. And it's important to realize that this model is being exported elsewhere. And um, some of us are concerned about that because it's also the exporting of this exploitative agro-industrial food system um, that places profits over people. It's, it's a symptom of that. So the, um, there is a group called the uh, Global Solidarity Alliance for Food, Health, and Social Justice that has emerged um, to try and provide a counterweight to this global food banking network. And you can uh, go and find some resources there. Um, the, the website is rightsnotcharity.org. And um, you know we have made podcasts and resources for anybody really interested in these topics that you just asked me about, food waste, charity, um, their links to broader food system issues, to racial justice issues, um, to the the broader global movement for the right to food and how, you know, what this work and research has done for me is to be like, man, we really need to see a right to food movement emerge in the United States where, you know, we're seeing conversations about the right to health care, the right to housing. Why aren't we politicizing food in the same way yet? And while charity proliferates, you can't claim a gift as a right, right? Um, but yet we have all of these other nutrition assistance programs that are ostensibly rights. If I'm 130% below the poverty line, I have my right to go get SNAP benefits. If I'm a low-income child, I have my right to go get um, school meals. Um, and we need to be having a broader conversation, I think, about the way that the right to food is structured in the United States and why that right is not fully being realized by our government. As Josh says, Feeding America is a complicated institution to assess. It facilitates the distribution of food to millions, but makes sure that it is done in a way that pleases industry and keeps food behind a paywall. It ensures that we have a band-aid to cover one of inequality's ugliest manifestations without needing to address any of the underlying causes. Here's a quick overview of some of the ties that members from Feeding America's board of directors have. Their CEO spent 13 years on Walmart's leadership team, and before that, worked for Adams & Reese, a corporate tax law firm. One member comes from a company called Ingredion. One of Ingredion's main products is high-fructose corn syrup, and they have revenues approaching $7 billion. Another comes from U.S. Foods, a distributor with revenues approaching $30 billion. One spent time at Kraft Heinz, another with General Mills. My personal favorite, one from a company called Corteva, 
which is a spin-off company from Dow DuPont, which is their sort of seed agrochemical company. Another comes from the American Egg Board, which is an egg lobby. So they're in bed with Big Egg. Another member was once with Walmart. One's from Morgan Stanley. Another's a former CEO of ConAgra Foods. To be fair to them, the board does have a fair amount of representation from the nonprofit world. But just think about it this way. How can a system this implicated by industry possibly be interested in changing it? The board is chock full of people who have represented companies that have a vested interest in keeping the status quo exactly as it is. Next week, we'll get a better look into how this so-called paywall manifests, and how the rituals of humiliation are usually prerequisites for getting people to access the excesses of our food system. After having talked about this issue on a macro scale, next week we will zoom in on how this manifests on a micro level, in the picking up and distributing of the waste how it happens, how people get it, and critically, how it relies on unpaid labor. Thanks for listening. This has been Candy Jail. I'm Marcus Pittsburgh. Life in a candy jail with peppermint bars, peanut brittle bunk beds and marshmallow walls Where the guards are gracious and the grounds are grand Keeps the data on your favorite brand